Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Calloway. I serve as the student and education pastor here at Unity. In today's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer takes us through the biblical picture of what God wants. Today's message is found in Matthew chapter 23. Stay with us to the end and find out how you can connect to Unity Baptist Church. As our children are dismissing at this time, you can go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew 23, but you can just kind of put your finger in it because we're going to be looking at something else briefly. First, this last summer, my wife and I, we, uh, we kind of got tired of being cooped up, you know, in our house from all the COVID back when everybody was kind of hunkering down in their houses. We said, wow, we need to, we need to get a little bit of a vacation. We need to go out. So we went down to Texas. You're welcome, Theron. And so uh, down in Texas, we visited for the first time in our life the Alamo Mission in San Antonio, which was kind of interesting to me. We were going to be driving through the area, and I wanted to make sure that we stopped and saw that. It was a famous part of our history. And if you go inside the Alamo Mission, you'll see there's like this brass line that uh, is in the middle of the mission, and you ask your tour guide what that means, and they'll tell you there's a legend about the famous fellow named Colonel Travis Colonel William Barrett Travis, and he was the one kind of leading the charge, leading the defense of the Alamo during this hopeless time. There were several thousand of Santa Ana's armies surrounding that small mission with only 189 men inside to defend, and not all of them were even trained soldiers. Uh, Travis himself was a lawyer by trade. Well, he came to a conclusion, and he drew the men together, and he began a speech, and he said, we must die. Always tough when you start out a speech with those words. He said, our business is not to make a fruitless effort to save our lives, but to choose the manner of our death. And then with a flourish, he drew out his sword and slowly drew a line in the sand, as the legend goes. And then he said, those prepared to give their life in freedom's cause come over to me. Now, we're all familiar with that legend and that story. That time when then where he's calling men to give their lives to something more important. He's drawing a line, asking them to go from where they are right now to a place of full and total commitment. In a very real sense, our study of the seven churches of Revelation forces us, as every other church, to come to this same conclusion. If you remember, Jesus in, this, in Revelation chapters you know, 3 and 4, he's, he's drawing a line in the sand, He's letting us know that over here is what I like. Over here are things that I hate in a church. And in a very real sense, he's drawn a line, and he's asked us to come join him to be the kind of church that Jesus loves, the kind of church that Jesus blesses. And so if we compress each praise and criticism of the seven churches of Revelation, we'll come to, to some conclusions. And I just want to share those very briefly with you here. If you take all the things that Jesus praises and make a list, if you take the things that Jesus hates and you make a list, you're going to come to a list that looks something like this. You're going to discover that with the things that Jesus loves, he loves truth. God loves it when we teach doctrine, when we teach scripture. We don't just teach men's opinions. We don't just send you out this door with, with popular psychology and some good ideas how to live a happy life. He wants us to teach truth. So even when the world is clamoring for a chocolate cake, we give people 
lean chicken and fish and, and spinach like we do for our children. When they're growing up, they want to eat Snickers bars, but we give them something healthy because we know it's what they need. God loves patience when we are steadfast amidst trouble, when we have a long fuse. We're not easily angered. We're not easily offended. We're patient. It's when we're willing to suffer our, for our faith. God says in 1 Peter 2.19, it's a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. God doesn't enjoy our pain, but our pain shows our commitment to how much we believe in something. He, he, Jesus loves commitment. We don't fear people. We don't fear those outside the church and their threats. We don't even fear those within the church and their threats. We're committed to Jesus alone. When we hold to a pure gospel in the middle of a, of a day where the gospel is losing its presence within our culture, when people are dumbing down the gospel, we hold fast. Jesus loves it when we're courageous. We're not scared of persecution. Our eyes are on something much greater and much more important. When we are diligent, when we, are per, when we persevere, Jesus loves, in the seven churches we discovered, he loves discipleship. Even if your church is completely dead, and you just feel like you walk in, you're like, wow, is this a funeral home or a church? When your church is completely dead, it's, he's still told Sardis, he says, look around. Some of you that are alive, strengthen what remains. It means to disciple them, build them up, fill their bones full of concrete scripture, you know, just strengthen them. Jesus loves faith. Without faith, Hebrews 11:6 6 says, it's impossible to please God. Not hard, but impossible. It means that we're willing to trust God and to go to places we've never been, do things we've never done, uh, obey God in areas we've never obeyed, and we just trust him with the outcome. That's faith. And God loves unity. Remember the church at Philadelphia, the church of whom God had nothing bad to say. These other churches, they were full of disunity and disharmony but not Philadelphia. And so what did God tell them? When a church is unified, God says, I'm opening a wide door of ministry for you. God wants to bless the church where there's not infighting. You see, even, even with Department of Children and Families, they're not gonna put kids into unhealthy homes. God's even wiser. God's not gonna bless a church with tremendous evangelistic fruit and drawing people to it if we're unhealthy. God wants to bless the church that is, has a healthy relationship. Or what were some of the things that God hated that he mentioned in these churches? You remember Ephesus, our first church, what did he condemn them for? They did everything right, but they had left what? Their first love. They were a dead and lifeless marriage. You know, that's what God compares the church to Jesus as. Jesus is the head of the church. He is the bridegroom, the church is the bride. And he doesn't want his bride just doing what she does because it's what you have to do. I mean, none of you got married because you thought it was gonna be great just to have some guy who can change the oil or some wife who can cook for you or, or, or you know, whatever you do. You know, we don't just marry each other for what we can function and accomplish. We marry for love. There's a relationship. The reason I serve my wife, the reason I rub her stinky feet at night, and I do, the reason I do is because I, well, they're not that stinky, sorry. Uh, I'm gonna get myself in trouble. Don't you laugh at that. All right, but the reason I do that is because I love her. I don't do it because I'm like, oh, let's see, check this off. I'm, a husband is supposed to rub his wife's feet, so come here, babe. Let me get this over with. It's the same thing in the church. We don't just do church activities. Well, it's time to go to church. Doggone, I hate going to church. Oh, man, I gotta give. Well, fine, it's what we do. We do everything out of love. And so Jesus, he hates it when we just do things because it's what we do. He, he wants us to have an internal motivation. 
He also hates false teaching. As a church, we can't ignore false teaching. And there's a movement today that says, let's just ignore doctrine, let's ignore teaching. Let's just all hold hands and sing kumbaya and roast marshmallows by the fire. Does that work? That's not unity, that's ignorance. Okay, apart from a unity in Christ, there's no unity whatsoever. We have to at least have a unity in the gospel. So what do we do with false teaching? We don't tolerate it. We look out for it. The Bible says to mark those that cause doctrinal division amongst you. We, we, we name it. We, we remove it. We protect the church from receiving false teaching, and we hold to this book. He also hates it when churches are weak, when we're more concerned about people being upset than God being pleased. When we're willing to go all the way around to try to, you know, we, we, just, we, we tiptoe around to make sure certain people aren't upset, but we're not asking ourselves the question, is God happy? We're more concerned about men than God. What Paul say in Galatians 1? If I serve men, if I was a servant of man just trying to please man all the time, I cannot be a servant of God. You see, we can't worry about what people think and what God thinks. We start with what God thinks, and then we love men where they're at. He doesn't like it when we have an authority outside the Bible. There were churches who were tolerating Jezebel, you know, this lady, and she was bringing prophecy, and some of these others, they bring in these false prophecies to the church, and we, he doesn't like it when a church brings in and they put on par with Scripture uh, popular psychology or science or uh, just human rationalism and thinking, and, or even sometimes today we have people who are trying to bring in prophecy into the church. Well, God gave me a message, and you're supposed to do this. Really? There is no prophecy outside of the word of God. This is the beginning, the end, and fully sufficient. We also see through Sardis that God hates deadness in a church. He doesn't like it when we no longer care about being the church today. We just talk about the church of yesterday. Oh, boy, this used to be great. We used to be great. There was a lot of things happening. Oh, you know, look back in the Old Testament, New Testament, and let's look back in the 1940s and 50s, and look how God moved, but they don't try to be the church today. God says that's deadness. You're a mausoleum. God doesn't like lukewarmness, you know? It's when we, we want to say that we're a Christian because we love the retirement package. We love the idea of going to heaven. Um, we want to join the football team. We want to wear the jerseys. We want to go on the road trips. Uh, we want to go out for McDonald's afterward. We want the college scholarship, but we don't want to work. We don't want to exert ourselves. The Bible calls that lukewarm Christianity. When we want to be part of the team, we want to be on the team, we want to be in church, we want the title of Christian, we want the title of born again, but we don't want to exert effort. And the last thing God hated was, simple, was simply self-deception. We had Laodicea, remember? We just talked about them last week. They were complacent. They had everything they needed. They didn't need to trust God anymore. I could trust myself. And that creates complacency, even pride within an individual, and self-deception. They start thinking that they're better than they really were, and God said, you're like your nasty water, you know? So we look at all the above, and we ask ourselves, if Jesus made it this clear, here's all the things Jesus wants in a church, here's all the things Jesus hates, what church in their right mind would say, you know what, we don't really care what Jesus thinks, we're going to go ahead and do our own thing anyway? You think that's unthinkable, right? Well, I don't think we do it as a church intentionally, but I think that the, the less we look at this book, the more we start to just kind of do things our way, and we start adding things to the church, things that were okay at the time, but maybe we just start adding things, and they become on par with Scripture, and, and now tradition becomes on par with the Bible. It becomes law. You know, it's, it's, it's man-made religion. Who wouldn't follow Jesus and do church his way? Well, there was a group of people who wouldn't do it in Jesus' day. Who were they? It was the Pharisees. 
They didn't like this Jesus coming in and trying to call them back to the simplicity of the gospel. They wanted this complex religious system that man created. And they wanted to make sure that every one of you followed it too, because I have to do this. Doggone it, Greg, you're going to have to do this too. If I'm going to be miserable, you ought to be miserable. And that's what the Pharisees would do. This is a religion where Reb Tevye is in charge. What are we talking about here? 1967. Yeah, anybody even a human in 1967? Uh, we're talking about Fiddler on the Roof. You ever seen the musical? Right? Sunrise, sunset. Oh, you're not with me there, are you? Well, you got this Russian dairy farmer during the Pale of Settlement. You know, the Jews are being persecuted in the Pale, the outside modern-day Moldova, Belarus, and all these other names you can't pronounce. And they're being pushed off their farms. And old, old Tevye, he's tired of this. Everything is changing, and it's driving him crazy, and he's getting old. And so, uh, and even now, his daughters, they want to marry uh, not because some matchmaker told them that they'd be a good fit. They Believe it or not, they actually wanted to marry for love. Oh, and this was just bothering Tevye. And what, and what did he start singing? Tradition! Tradition, right? That's what we hold to. It's what we do. He says, if we take tradition out of, of our life, he says, we become unstable. We're as unstable as a fiddler on a roof. That's where he gets his title. Okay, and so there's this idea that, that we have to hold tradition because without it, I don't feel secure. I don't feel stable in my life. And so he was willing even to walk away from his relationships to hold fast to tradition, where tradition became more important than people. You remember that scene of, uh, I don't know, I, I remember the, which daughter it was. We had three daughters and they wanted to marry for love. <laughs> Figure that. But he has this daughter who's just begging him, you know, Papa, you know, are you gonna, forgive me, take me back in. And he wouldn't, he just turned his back upon her and he picked up his plow and he kept plowing. Because for him, it was more important to be judicially correct than to love his own daughter. That's when tradition becomes dangerous. Now, Pastor, are you saying that all tradition is bad? Absolutely not. Tradition can be good and healthy and something that builds one up and provides these familiar patterns and things that we do can provide a sense of unification within a church and within a home. All tradition is not bad, okay? We don't throw out tradition just because it's tradition. We don't hold on to it just because it's tradition. We weigh everything according to the book. When tradition becomes a problem is when be the tradition becomes more important than the person. It's like the Pharisees. You remember when he, when talking about Jesus and the Sabbath, and Jesus says that Sabbath was made for the man, not man for the Sabbath. What was he talking about? That Sabbath was originally created at creation on the seventh day to give man a rest so that we didn't get the idea that our production for God is what made us valuable. And so God says, take a day off and use that time just to remember me, the God who gave you that rest day, because you're more important than what you produce. But what did religious leaders do along the way? They started saying, oh, you have a day off, let's fill it. Now, it's not enough just to say, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. That's a very simple command, and we allow people to apply that as they seek to honor God. What, do we, what did the Pharisees do? Oh, by the way, you can't drag a chair in the dirt. You can't climb a tree. You can't, you have to count your steps. You have to make your food the day ahead. They, they made 600 laws about how to obey the Old Testament Sabbath. And pretty soon man despised Sabbath. It was the hardest day of the week. 
They didn't look forward to it. It wasn't a day of rest. It was a day of the hardest work. It was inconvenience. It was suffering. It was trouble. Now, the idea that man was created just to obey a bunch of Sabbath laws, but it wasn't about rest anymore. It was no longer about the worship of God. It was no longer about loving your neighbor. It was just keeping up with all these things that the Pharisees were adding. That's when tradition becomes a problem, when tradition gets in the way of loving your neighbor, when tradition gets in the way of loving God, when tradition gets in the way of doing church God's way. And so sometimes we have to reevaluate what we do and even why we do it. Now, my family, we love traditions. I have no problem. If your family does Taco Tuesday every week, more power to you. In fact, invite me over. But, you know, you know my family is just as traditional. Okay, we, Christmas time especially, our families, we're the most traditional Christmas family there is. There's certain things that we always do. We didn't start out that way. We got kids. We started doing things. Well, hey, let's, let's cut out some snowflakes this year. Well, as soon as we do that one time, now what? Every year, my Christmas lawyer daughter, Mackenzie, is going to make sure that we, oh, we always do it. We're like, no, we just did it last year. Oh, well, now we always do it. And so now we always do snowflakes on a certain night watching a Christmas movie. Well, one year we did a gingerbread house. Guess what? Every year now we have to do a gingerbread house. Uh, we, we, do, we number the gifts a certain way. We, I, one year I, I drew pictures for each of the children to represent their name instead of their name. You know, for like uh, Mackenzie, we called her Mickey. So I drew a little Mickey head and Capri... We drew a little sunshine, like Capri Sun or whatever. I drew these little logos on the kids' birthday or Christmas presents. So guess what? Every year now, they're in their 20s, and they still want those little picture logos on their Christmas presents. Why? It's tradition. Once you do it once, you do it forever. And they're not bad. They're things the kids look forward to. When does it become a problem? It's when those traditions become so piled up that we can't actually spend time with our kids now. It's just we're just performing the function of Christmas, and we get tired. That's when those traditions become a problem. And so this year, when our kids came over, we just moved into our house. We didn't have anything together. We didn't have the, the energy, the time, or money to do all these traditions. See, we, we told our kids, this year, it's going to be simple. Pick one or two traditions. Here's what we do. And so we did. And we spent time with our children. Because when children come home, is it about making sure we check off the Christmas checklist? Is that what it's about? It's about spending time with our kids. It's about enjoying them. It's about loving them. And that is a reminder of, in church, we got to be the same way. There's good traditions. But just because we did something once doesn't mean it's to be done from time eternal, you know, into perpetuity here. Sometimes we have to stop and examine and go, you know what? We're so busy maintaining all the things we've always done, I don't have time to spend time with you guys anymore. We're too busy to be accomplishing the purposes of God. And at that point, friends, at that point, we become a Pharisaic religion. And so we've got to watch ourselves. Jesus in Matthew 23, we're finally getting there. Uh, Jesus in Matthew 23 had been dealing with this kind of Pharisaic religion where they put this yoke of slavery on these people their whole life. And Jesus is finally going to remind them, friends, here's what true, everything I've been saying in the Sermon on the Mount, that's what true religion looks like. All this stuff that you're putting people under, it's a yoke of bondage and slavery, and it's actually preventing people from doing the most important things. And so in Matthew 23, Jesus is going to give us seven symptoms of man-made religion, the kind of things that hold us back from accomplishing the most important purposes of God. Because we can do that in a church, can't we? We can become so busy with all the programs and activities and things that we've kind of collected over the years 
in the maintaining of all these programs that now we can discover that we're very busy, but we're not productive. We're so busy, we no longer do evangelism. That's the whole point of the church is sharing the good news and the gospel and making disciples. And yet the two most important thing, tasks that a church has in proclaiming the gospel and making disciples, we no longer do it because we're just doing religious activity. I don't think there's any of you here today that just wants to do religious activity. You want to know that the efforts that you're putting into your relationship with God matter, that it's doing something, that it's accomplishing the things that Jesus says, well done. Well, briefly, let's look at these. The first thing Jesus says is a symptom of man-made religion. And by the way, every one of us, some of these are in our life. Even myself, I look and I'm like, oh, I got to walk, I got to work on that. But we want to make sure we can minimize this within the presence of our church and in our lives. The first thing he condemns is hypocrisy. In Matthew 23, verses 2 to 4, Jesus speaks to the Pharisees and says, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Pause. He's talking about that they feel like they're under the authority of Moses because they're part of the Sanhedrin, this group of 70 that Moses' father Jethro created. The Sanhedrin's been around since Moses, and these Pharisees know it. And so they think that because they've been around a long time, that now they have the right to say what religion looks like. Can we do that in a church where we start thinking that there is seniority in a church? Is there such thing as a seniority in church? Careful. You can be a senior, and we ought to listen to seniors because of the wisdom God has given you, given your age, and we ought to honor and respect you. But is there seniority in a church that because I've been in a church for 50 years, now I have more of a say than this guy who's been here for five? It's what we do in business. It's not what we do in the church. Jesus is the head of the church. He decides what happens in a church. You, as a church, vote on people to represent you and to help lead and guide the church, not to do their will, but to discover the will of the head, Jesus. That's, what, that's, what, that's the way it works. But the Pharisees, they believe that there's seniority and therefore they should decide what happens in a church. That's scary, friends. We don't ever want to get to that place. Well, they sat on Moses' seat and he says, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. They preach, but they do not practice. It's where we get that term, practice what you preach. It started with the Pharisees. They had collected so many oral traditions and laws that pretty soon it was this heavy burden. Worshiping God in church was this heavy burden, and you're just dragging this thing, and you're thinking, man, I can't wait to die because then I don't have to carry this burden anymore. He says even the, even the Pharisees could no longer do what they were preaching to do. Do this, do this, do this, do this, but I, but I can't. I can't myself. He says for them, they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They've discovered we've added so many laws and so many required activities to be spiritual in a church that even the leaders can't do it. We don't want to be there. We want to be, as a church, we want to be lean. We want to be healthy. We're called to run a race, not drag a pack behind us as a church. We want to be about the things that are most important to the heart of God. The second symptom is pride, verses 5 through 12. He says, they do their deeds to be seen by others, and they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. So pride, they just want to be seen as spiritual. They don't want to be spiritual. Glad that never happens in this century. 
They want to be seen as spiritual. They don't necessarily want to be a spiritual person. How did that pride show itself in the Pharisees? It showed itself in a conversation of phylacteries and fringes. So he's, it, pride shows itself in your outer appearance, in your, if you will, your clothing. But instead of having an argument whether or not you must wear a suit and tie to church, this is a conversation about wearing phylacteries and fringes. Well, we got to understand what those two things are. A phylactery... Okay, remember uh, back in the Old Testament, the Bible metaphorically was talking about how the word of God should be as frontlets to our eyes. It should be before us at all times, and we should bind it to us. The Bible's speaking metaphorically, but the Orthodox Jews, and if you go into Israel today, you may actually see men wearing phylacteries, and they've got these black, you know, leather boxes on their head, and they wrote down scripture, and they literally wear scripture, and they bind it to themselves with these leather straps. Well, the idea was, well, if it's spiritual to wear the word of God, not sure that's a trend that's going to catch on with you guys. I don't see any phylacteries here today. But the Pharisees thought, well, if it's spiritual to wear the word of God, what if I wear really broad straps? What would that communicate? Now I'm even more spiritual because I'm letting everybody see. I've got thick leather straps, and so they started increasing the size of the phylacteries. Well, what about the fringes? See, back in the book of Numbers, the Bible actually talked about the men and distinguishing their dress from the women. They'd wear these fringes with a blue cord, and this blue cord represented the word of God and the, and the law of God. Well, if God commands that we wear fringes, these tassels on our clothing, then uh, instead of a three-inch tassel, say, how spiritual would I look if I had a four-inch tassel? Six-inch, let's be crazy, 10-inch tassels. And pretty soon, you've got a competition. Who has the longest tassels? Because you want to appear spiritual rather than to be spiritual. Jesus is warning them, be careful about your dress codes. Is how you came to church today and what you dress the most important thing about your coming to church today? No, it's not. The Pharisee would say yes. Jesus would say no. What does God look at? Like 1 Samuel 16, uh, Samuel's talking to, uh, you know, all the, all the guys that are looking to be king, and they're looking at David, and he says, man looks on the outside, but where does God look? He looks on the heart. What does God care about your being here today? How you dress? No, it's what's in your heart. Have you come here to allow God to change you? Have you come here to allow God to dress up your heart? Or are we just worried about these outer garments we're wearing? We gotta be very careful about pushing dress codes in churches because we become a lot more Pharisaic than like Christ because Jesus was always looking at the heart. In fact, there's nothing in the Bible, by the way, that says there's a certain way that you have to dress when you come to church. Did you know that? It does say a few things, but here's, here's your prohibitions. One, it warns you about not dressing up too much. Didn't think you'd hear that, did you? Don't dress up too much. Don't dress to be seen by others. Don't dress so that you look a certain spiritual way. Don't do that for that purpose. Now, if you choose to wear a suit and tie, nothing wrong with that. Respect that. Great, looks great. That's how you choose to honor God. But what about the guy who comes in a nice pair of pants and a shirt? Is he less spiritual? Do we look down on that person? No, we don't. That's how he's choosing to honor God. I, you know, uh, I appeal to Romans chapter 14. They would argue back and forth on opinions. And so Paul tells them, as for the one who is weak in faith, by the way, weak in faith does not mean that they don't have much faith in, uh, in Jesus as much as it is that they're easily offended. Their faith is weak. It, the slightest thing bothers and offends them. It just gets in their craw, and they just got to say something to be judicially right about something. That's someone who is weak in faith. They're easily offended. He says, welcome them not 
to quarrel over opinions. How we dress when we come to church, is that an opinion? Yes, it is. Don't fight over it. You have one guy that wants to dress up, don't look down on him because he wants to dress up. That's how he chooses to honor God. What about the guy who doesn't dress up as much? Don't look down on him. Don't say, well, I lose respect for that guy because he's not dressing according to my man-made religious standards. That's what the Pharisees did. Instead, Paul says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. Let that be between him and God. He says, let everyone be convinced in his own mind. So you choose to honor God with your dress how you choose to. You choose to honor God with your dress how you choose to. I mean, if we're going to say, well, you have to give God your best when you come on Sunday morning, that's great how you choose to do that. But if you're going to do that, be consistent. I expect, if that's your standard, I expect to see you in a tuxedo next week because that's the best. I want to see your wife wearing a formal dress, okay? I want, to, I want you to pick her up in a limousine. I want you to drive her here like you're taking her to the prom. I want to see boutonnieres. I want to see lapel pins and uh, tie tacks and cufflinks. I want you to go completely all out because if the standard of obeying God is my external appearance, let's do it right. Let's don't be half-hearted and just wear a suit and tie. Anybody can do that. But you say, that's ridiculous. You're exactly right. It's ridiculous to think that we gain more favor or we're more spiritual a person because of how we dress. Let's look at the inside, the condition of our heart. You want to know there's three things God says about dress. Number one, don't overdress. Don't dress to impress. Don't dress to look spiritual. The second thing is don't underdress. Don't be immodest. Okay? Don't be immodest. And the third thing is don't dress like the other gender. Don't see anybody doing that here today. So I don't think that's a real problem. But those are the only three things we can say. Anything outside of those standards is a man-made standard. And we've got to be careful. If you choose to do that for yourself, no problem. We won't criticize. If somebody else chooses to do something else, that's okay. Let everyone be convinced, Romans says, in his own mind. Let him dress for the Lord. Well, how else did Pharisaic pride show itself? He says they love the place of honor at the feasts. They love the best seats and the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Let's pause there. Pharisees, they loved their titles. Call me teacher. Call me rabbi. Call me reverend. Call me doctor. Call me father. Call me monsignor. Call me pope. And we get in religious circles, we can get very consumed with religious titles. We tap our name badge and say, uh, that's Reverend Bauer to you. We've got to be careful, friends. These titles, Jesus says, don't worry about your titles. In fact, what should we do, does he say? Whomever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. He says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Serve the people of God. Don't demand respect from them. Serve the people of God. Love the people God has called you to. Well, number three, he warns against a false gospel. In verse 13, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. He says, You shut up the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, and you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter in. Woe to you. You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he does become a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Friends, you think I preach hard. Listen to Jesus. Jesus doesn't pull any punches. He just gives you, he just cuts it straight and says, here's some truth for you. Now, he does it in a loving way, but he lets you know what's right and wrong. But the Pharisees, they had taken salvation by grace through faith. And by the way, it's always been that way. Old New Testament, they look to the cross. We look back to the cross. We're all saved the same way. But they took a salvation by grace through faith, and they made it a salvation of works. 
You got to do all this to please God so you can earn your way into heaven. And God says, you slam the doors of heaven in people's faces when you do that. Salvation is purely a work of God. By grace, through faith, it's according to God's mercy he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we have done. Your coming here to church has not made you any more saved than you were when you came in. Your giving money doesn't make you any more saved. Taking the Lord's Supper doesn't make you more saved. Getting baptized here, it'll get you wet, but it won't get you more saved. Salvation is a work of the heart that God does alone. The Pharisee says, no, we're gonna tell you what you have to do. You have to look like us to be saved. And if you don't look like us, you can't be us. Friends, we gotta be careful when people come to the church and they don't look and act like us that we don't slam the doors of the gospel shut on them because you have to cut your hair a certain way. You gotta dress a certain way. You gotta be and act like us. You have to love Andy Griffith like, like I do. Okay, we, we can't be this kind of person where we all have to be a certain way. That's not unity, that's uniformity. But that's what the Pharisees did. You say, well, we're a Baptist church. We don't pervert the gospel. Can we? we? Often we don't change it into a works-based gospel, but what do we do? We change it into an overly simplistic gospel because the only thing we're concerned about is not is that person truly converted. We're concerned with will they come to our church? And so we just give them a quick, easy gospel. Hey, do you want to go to heaven where it's amazing, it's great, and the birds sing like you're in a Disney movie, and you, know, you can eat and never get fat, and it's just a great place to be? Or... Do you want to own a piece of real estate in hell, by the way? It's dark, it's fiery, demons are dancing around you. Do you want to go there? <sighs> Nobody would pick hell. They repeat this prayer after me, and you're in. God owes you salvation. Is that the gospel? That is not the gospel. The gospel, look far and wide in the Bible. Nobody ever offers people heaven. Heaven is a byproduct. The gospel message is, you're a sinner just like I am. We have all violated God's law, and God is angry. His wrath against sin is real, and he will punish sin justly in the lake of fire. But if we will trust in the cross, in what Jesus has done on the cross, taking the punishment that you and I deserved upon himself, dying in our place, and we trust not in ourselves, not in our works, but in him alone, then he grants to us eternal life. He has forgiven us, and now we are united with Christ. And oh yeah, by the way, heaven comes in that package too. You see, we gotta preach a full gospel. We can't give these gospel inoculations where we give them enough of the dead thing so that they can't get infected with the real thing. And I've, t I've personally witnessed right here in this community, the Kentucky area, do you know that most everybody around here thinks they're all saved? Doesn't matter how they're living, everybody thinks they're saved here. They've gotten a gospel inoculation. Somewhere along the, along the line, they prayed a prayer. They wrote something in the front cover of their Bible. They threw a stick in the fire. They walked an aisle. And now they think they're saved because they said the magic words. But there's never been a time when they realize I'm a sinner and that my sin justly sends me to hell. But I need Jesus, what he has done for me on the cross to save me in him alone, and I, and I repent, I turn from my sins, I turn to Christ, I change my mind about, that is not a good way to live, and our attitude toward sin changes, we hate sin. Our attitude toward God and holiness changes, and I love God. And our life begins to slowly, over time, change to look more like God. See, that's what the gospel looks like, but if we're in a hurry and we just wanna add people to the church, we're just gonna dumb down the gospel, and this is the very thing Jesus condemned the Pharisees for. We gotta be careful how we share our faith. He says they, when we do that, we make those people, when we have man-made religion, 
and we just pass on our traditions rather than a pure gospel? Jesus says, you make those generations twice the son of hell that you are. In other words, you're a son of hell. You're shutting the door of kingdom, kingdom doors in people's faces. But he says, for every generation where you allow that legalism to take place, they get worse and worse and more hardened in it. We've been doing it this way for 30 years. We've been doing this way for 50 years. Last 100 years, we've been doing it this way. And the longer you allow, because we've always done it that way, to determine our future, the more insistent and rigid and cold and iron-fisted a person can become. So we've got to be careful. Every generation has to evaluate what they do as a church, as an individual. Does it honor Jesus, or is it just man-made religion. Well, number four, the Pharisees were not truthful. In verse 16, he says, woe to you blind guides who say, if anybody swears by the temple, it's nothing. If anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. Let's pause there. The Pharisees dealt in variations of truth. You, you had to corner a Pharisee to get to what's really true, because they wouldn't immediately come out with the truth. There were gradations of truth. So if I wanted to tell Sarah something here, I could, I could swear by my own head, and that means something. But if I swear by something higher, I swear by my mother, or I swear by the, the sky above, or I swear by the temple, or here, the gold of the temple, as if that was more holy. There were gradations. The, the gold of the temple was evidently the triple dog dare of the Pharisees. You know, it was the, it was the granddaddy. Now you know I'm telling the truth if I swear by the gold in the temple. But if I swear by something less, eh, maybe it's the truth, maybe it's not. And as Christians, sometimes we can speak in variations of truth. We can say just enough truth to get people to believe a lie. It's called deception. It's what Satan does. He's the deceiver of the whole world. His goal is that somebody walks away believing something in error. It's, it's the garden where he says, did God really say? So we've got to be careful that we don't deal in variations of truth. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5, 37? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Just be known for being truthful. Why? Because God is truth. Number five, it's religion without integrity. Again, you're looking at the outside, not the inside. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. You tithe of mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightiers matters of the law, what God really wants. You neglect justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Okay, so remember, these are religious people who are focusing on their application of Scripture. They're passing on their application of the Word, not the exposition of the Word, allowing you to apply it between you and the Lord. They have to control you. And that's what man-made religion does. It tries to control. It has to look my way. You're never more like a Pharisee than when we're trying to control people. We teach people the Word of God. We model the Word of God. We disciple them in the Word of God and we release them to follow God as their conscience sees fit. Now, if it's a revealed area of the Word of God, there's no debate. But if there's a gray area in the Word of God, we give people freedom. We give people space. And so we don't want religion without integrity. He says, you tithe of all your spices. He says, you even strain out gnats. They put cheesecloth over their cups and they drink it to make sure they didn't eat something unclean. He says, you ate the biggest unclean thing out there. You ate a camel. He says, because you have, you have neglected the most important things of the law, inward transformation. And so the next thing he condemns in six, is, or number six is selfishness and indulgence. He says, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside, what are they full of? Greed, self-indulgence. By the way, <clears throat> Jesus is pointing out, <clears throat> these are the things 
<clears throat> that lead to legalism. It's a desire to be conforming and obedient to God in this area so when I'm in private, I can live this, er live this way and still feel spiritual. That's what drives that legalism. I can, I can feel good about my walk with God over here because I got this checklist I follow. So now over here, I can live indulgent and greedy. But I'm still spiritual because I did my checklist. I did the things I'm supposed to do. And Jesus says that's a sign of man-made religion. The goal of Pharisees is not to be spiritual, it's to look spiritual. It's me when I was a kid, and my dad would tell me to clean the room. Did I care if I had a clean room as a kid? No, I did not. I shared it with four other brothers. There were five kids in one room. You think you got it bad. Five boys in one tiny room, and it would get messy, and my dad would tell me on a Saturday when I wanted to be outside playing and throwing corn at my brothers. That's what you do on a farm. You know, I want to throw corn at my brothers. I want to go in the basement. I want to play my Atari 2600. Anybody with me here? Atari. And I just wanted to play. I wanted to be indulgent. But my dad says I have to clean. So I didn't care about being clean. I cared about looking clean. So what I do? I put my hands together like a, like a caterpillar bulldozer, and I just pushed everything straight under the bed. I mean everything. There might have been food. There may have been a pet hamster. I don't know. And then I would make my bed very neatly, and I would cover the edge of my bed. I'd pull the blanket down far enough it would reach the floor. So when my dad would walk by, he'd be, hmm, how impressive. Uh, but my dad is smarter than that. He saw my duplicity. He's like, there's no way you made this room look like that. And he'd come under, and what's the first thing he did? He'd open my closet, he'd pull everything out. He'd pull up the sheet and he'd see under my bed and he would pull it all out and he'd make me look at my sin, okay? And he'd say, clean it up. Why did I not care about the, the clean room? Because my heart hadn't changed. I didn't see the value of a clean room. I just wanted to look clean to my dad. And Jesus is saying that sometimes in man-made religion, we can be far more concerned with looking good, with looking spiritual, with looking clean, and not actually being a clean person. That's man-made religion. <clears throat> Number seven, man-made religion tends to elevate past leaders and themselves. Verse 29, he says, "'Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites, "'for you build the tombs of the prophets.'" and you decorate the monuments of the righteous. Let's pause there. They, did, they love to point to the past and say, oh, look at the glory days. Look at how things were. Things were so great. They were wonderful. And they memorialize an era of Christianity, an era of following God. And we say that alone is where it's at. Pharisees did that. I'll tell you who else does it is, uh, is Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhism. My wife and I, we served in China uh, in 11 years, and we would go to these Tibetan Buddhist temples, and in addition to their, you know, their deities and their spirits and things, you'd see pictures of all their enlightened leaders and these lamas, as they called them, uh, decorating the walls, and people would actually pray to them and give to them and, and things like that. They would, they would point back and elevate a particular era of their Buddhism. Jesus is saying that in church and following God, we can do the same thing, and we can say there's one era where people really knew how to follow God, and they looked like this, and they dressed like this, and they act like this, and they had these programs, and therefore it should always look like that. We gotta be careful. We gotta be careful we're not becoming like a Pharisee when we do that. He says, and they go further. He says, if we have lived in the days of our fathers, we wouldn't have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. They're saying, we're so good. I know our fathers, they killed the prophets God sent them. We wouldn't do that but our father is dead. We would not. Which is really funny for a Pharisee to say, who killed Jesus? Okay, it was a, if you will, God gave his life. I understand that theologically speaking, but who plotted to kill Jesus his entire time on earth? It were the Pharisees. They're giving money and paying people to lie about Jesus. 
And yet they have the audacity to say, oh, if we were living back then, we wouldn't have stoned the prophets. You're stoning the prophets God's sending you today. Why? Because when they're, they're calling you back to the word of God and you don't like that. And so you want to stone those leaders because they're calling you to conformity with the word of God and not just conformity with a man-made religious system. Well, I just, I, just to balance this a little bit here, let me just say, I'm not saying we should not honor the past. I think it's great to remember what God has done. I think it's good to honor even those who have gone before us, those who have worked hard, those who have built things, those who have done good work, even here at Unity Baptist Church. Let's not forget those people, but let's be careful. There's a fine line between honoring the past and trying to live in the past. Honor the past, reach the people God has for you today. Honor the past, remember what they've done, and thank God and praise God for them, and learn from their example but remember, what they were doing back then was probably new for them back then, too. God has called us to reach the people that live around us today, not to simply canonize one segment, one era of Christianity. That's what man-made religion did. And so in a very real sense, as we, as we review what God has taught us in the seven churches, and as we review what Jesus says, the greatest opponent to true religion is man-made religion, God has drawn a line in the sand. And it's almost as if God is daring for us to come across. Like General Travis said, he, we must die. There's nobody here who's going to live forever. Our business is not to make a fruitless effort to save our lives, but to choose the manner of our death. We can't avoid death, but we can avoid a meaningless life, can't we? By making sure that what we do religiously is what Jesus has called us to do, to focus on the most important things first. So we conclude this series, What Matters to God. What matters to God is all that matters. Just remember that. What matters to God, that's all that matters. Let's close our hearts just in, in, in prayer. Father, we just thank you for this time together where we can study your word, where we can worship, where we can gather together in fellowship with other believers who are like-minded. God, I beg of you and pray that as a body of believers, you would do a mighty work, a spiritual work, a God-given work, and not a man-made work right here in our midst. That people would not just appear spiritual. They would not just be looking at the outside. We would not just worry about the condition of a church building or our bodies, but God, that we would worry about the condition of our hearts and whether or not we're loving our neighbors, that we're not holding people to artificial or man-made standards of righteousness, but that we call them to the pure gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus who freely offers that grace to every single individual. God, unite us together in this, this singular purpose. As we move forward in this world, God, uncertain of what tomorrow holds, but God, we, we know that there's something you've called us to do today. God, may we be faithful in doing that. We ask in Christ. Amen. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to make a decision to ask Christ into your heart, click on the link in the show notes and we will be able to help you find your way to Jesus. If you enjoyed today's message, give our podcast channel some love by liking and subscribing to it. And as promised, if you would like more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at UBC Ashland. Thank you for spending the day with us. We hope that you have a blessed day.